Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Professor Lord Robert Skidelsky, biographer of John Maynard Keynes, the most influential economist of the 20th century. In this wide-ranging interview, Skidelsky discusses how he helped David Owen to set up the SDP in the early 80s, how economic policymaking really works, and how he developed from a historian into an economist. Britain's history was forged outside Europe, not within Europe, Lord Skidelsky remarks, reflecting on the UK's vote to leave the EU, and why the efforts of Remain voting MPs and peers to hold a second referendum in a bid to reverse Brexit were, in his words, completely wrong. Professor Lord Skidelsky, thanks a lot for joining us on The Money. Just tell us a little bit about your academic career and how you came to be uh, basically an economic expert in the House of Lords. I started studying history at Oxford and so training as a historian. Then when I did graduate work, I became interested in the politics of economics. This was in two years and then gradually in economics itself. And that led me um, to the ambitious project of writing a book about the greatest economist of the 20th century, who is John Maynard Keynes. And of course, I didn't know much economics then, but I got a lot of help from you know, economists all over the place who were absolutely determined to put me right on, <laughs> on any, any aspect to do with the great man. So I had the benefit of tutorials with Milton Friedman, Paul Samuelson, Nicky Caldor, Joan Robinson, James Mead, all, all the best econ- living economists of the time. And I think they, that they compensated me, really, for um, lack of uh, formal training in economics. I felt I was all right. So you're a historian who became an economist and very interested always in practical policy making. And of course, when David Owen and Shirley Williams set up the SDP in the early 80s, breaking the mold of British politics, you were quite involved, weren't you? Yeah, I was one of the, I was one of the founding members. And uh, I, uh, after, uh, David Owen was the big attraction for me. Um, not, not, the, not so much. I liked Shirley Williams a lot, but David Owen was, was the sort of real force behind it. And um, I, I, I got onto their economics committee quite quickly. Now, whether I had any part in shaping the policy, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it was the idea of the social market economy, and that was a David Owen phrase which he imported from Germany. But what I did do was to keep Keynes alive in the 1980s in a way, because he was uh, the great economist of the middle way. Um, at that time, I mean, I don't know, you're too young to recall, but you know, politics was sort of divided between those who wanted to nationalize everything and those who wanted to privatize everything. And uh, we, 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 the SDP said, no, look, there is a middle way. You don't have to do this. Social market economy, Keynesian economics, kept alive in that, in that period. So in that way, I influenced the SDP. And I think the SDP, although it failed electorally, did actually break the mould in some way of British politics. I think it's fair to say there wouldn't have been new Labour, there wouldn't have been Tony Blair and Gordon Brown coming to the fore as the huge force they did yeah. without the SDP. Do you think that's fair? I think, that's, I think that's fair. I think the third way, 
third way was reeked with SDPisms. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, uh, it, yeah. They couldn't call it the middle way, but the third way. And yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think British politics was changed for the better by the intervention of the SDP, even though uh, the electoral system prevented it ever, you know, establishing a very big base in Parliament. You've often spent time with leading policymakers, chancellors, prime ministers, both Labour and Tory, uh, people at the highest echelons of, of the STP, as we've said. How is policy made in practice? Uh, because we can read economics textbooks and we can think about modelling and all the technical side, but it's a, a real mix of influences that means an economic policy actually happens, isn't it? It is, and at one time, I think economics was better called political economy because that takes into account um, the fact that it's not an exact science. You, 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 can, you can build the, the mathematical models for all you like, but it's rather like children and their toys. They mistake them for the real world, you know, they're, they're <laughs> little, little robots and little... And, and, and economists are like that. They're very infantile, you know, economists. I mean, I mean the people who are model builders. Yeah. They like their little toys and they then confuse them with the real world. But of course, and, and of course that's uh, very prestigious because they then claim to be, I think, Paul Samuel said, the queen of the social sciences because these models enable them to predict um, quantify and predict. Well, they can't because there are too many intervening things and politics is the huge intervener. And I think political economy, going back to Adam Smith, but of course Keynes as well, it, it took a broader view of what caused economies to behave in the way they did. And the idea that you, you, know, you could predict the future mathematically exactly um, was rubbish and politicians have never acted on that assumption. They've always understood that we make the economies, that uncertainty is inescapable, and um, uh, they have to win elections. So, um, that, that, so I mean, the serious answer to your question is I think economics, the best it can do is to reveal patterns and likely outcomes in a broad sense, in which it's exactly like all the other social sciences and its claim to superior empress status. And is, predictive power. You're uh, not buying it. No, I'm not buying it. Scientific modeling, economic modeling, it's really come into focus during the pandemic, hasn't it? Where you've had uh, epidemiologists, statisticians, professors making predictions about what will happen that very similar to economic modeling and those models have often turned out to be bunk and actually yeah. quite damaging to the public discourse. Yeah. But of course they are, they're more soundly based because they deal with the body and not the mind. <laughs> and the body is more amenable. I mean, medicine is a more accurate science than economics. Economists have always thought of themselves rather like pediatricians or, 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 or diagnostic. Uh, doctors uh, with the with the society as 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 the unit to be operated on, but of course that that is is is, is rubbish. But but, but yeah, epidemiology is, is 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 more accurate. I mean, medicine does make progress. Um, it does uncover truths that um, 
uh, were, were not there before. We, we're not, we're not, um, we, we don't rely any longer on um, Paracelsus and people like that for our diagnostics. So I think there has been more progress in medicine than in economics. I think every modern economics idea was stated perfectly reasonably 200 years ago. And you can't say that about medicine. But when it comes to economic policy making, Robert, models are a lot less important than many of us might be taught to believe. Personality is also really important, isn't it? The personality of the civil servants, of the politicians, the ministers. You got to know Margaret Thatcher quite well. You wrote a book about Margaret Thatcher. To what extent do you think her personality shaped her policy-making era, Blair's personality, and now Boris Johnson's personality? It's, it's difficult to say. Of course, of course, um, the, the, the personal impact of a leader on, on, on policy is huge. Um, uh, and that's not just because uh, the position that leader commands in, 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 in Parliament, right? but, but, but also uh, the position that the leader has in the country. And persuasiveness is part, you know, a central part of the art of, of politics. If you can't persuade people um, to follow you or to do what you'd like them to do, you're no good as a leader. I mean, this is one of the problems of the Labour Party in a way at the moment. But, um, and that's why Boris Johnson gets away with a lot of things, which perhaps he shouldn't, because he's an outsized personality. People can, so, now, someone like that, um, of course, uh, will have uh, uh, a tremendous authority, but, but, um, the British, British system is very civil service dominated, and there, there, are two, there, there are really two departments in Whitehall that really control most of policy. One is the Treasury, domestic policy, and the other is the Foreign Office. And they, they're the premier policy-making departments. And pe the, the politicians at the head of them um, are, are, are um, they're not their prisoners by any means, but if they're good, then those two departments have enormous impact on what happens, both in, in domestic policy and foreign policy. And every, all the other departments are sort of less important. As a historian, you've met lots of leaders uh, in the UK and around the world and studied many more. How do you think Boris Johnson will shape up as a leader uh, when historians look back at him? It's, it's hard to say, you, you know, his time isn't run. I think these are these, this is a sort of assessment that's easier to make after a person has, has, has done his bit and then retired from the scene. And then, you know, you can re recollect in tranquility um, <laughs> what, what he or she may have achieved. Now we're in the middle of the Boris Johnson era. He's got a very good chance, I would have thought, of getting another term. Um, he may slip up in some ways. Leaders often do. Um, uh, so that's another uh, element of uncertainty in politics, which makes prediction you know, in this sort of area pretty useless. Certainly been very difficult for him to wield his 80-seat majority, given uh, we've been hit with the pandemic. I actually um, supported him when he um, prorogued Parliament. In, in, was it 2019? In order to get the Brexit deal through. And I was against the, the, the lawyers who got up in, in, a, in, in, in a serried ranks and said this is monstrous, a breaking of international law. And I thought, well, come on, 
come on. I mean, you know, people voted for something, he's got to get it through. That's interesting, because you were broadly supportive of Remain before the referendum, and yet I know from talking to you at the time, you were quite offended at the idea that the political media class may try to engineer some kind of second referendum, some kind of Brexit reversal. Why were you so offended by that? Was that your historical instinct that it was wrong? It was also common sense, I think. If you, if, if you, if you, if you hold a referendum and, and, and say you're going to abide by the results and then you don't, I mean, that's terrible for democracy. It, it would divide the country much worse than the actual referendum did. And um, you'd, you'd get a backlash, a huge backlash. So I think just from political common sense, I think attempts to reverse it. And, and you know, the argument, well, you know, they were lied to. Uh, and, and had they been told the truth, it was all fake news, Brexit and so on. It doesn't wash. I mean, everyone. Everyone lies up to a point when they're fighting these campaigns. We've known each other for many, many years. We, we both see ourselves as kind of outsiders. We're from immigrant stock. You're from a, a Russian background. I'm from an Irish background. Were you surprised that the British establishment, so many people in the British establishment, felt they could possibly reverse that Brexit referendum? I, I was surprised, actually. Uh, I, I was too. I think it I, shocked me. Yeah, I think that the the European commitment was so strong they couldn't concede um, that uh, the British voters uh, would could do anything so stupid, and therefore it had to be that they were misled, and therefore there had to be another referendum, let's say, in which they were finally told the truth, in which their good sense. Um, would prevail over the Brexit nonsense. I think that was the mindset. Um, and uh, they didn't think they were thwarting the cool will of the electorate, but it's misled will. Mm. Well, again, it doesn't, it doesn't work. I had huge, I had big arguments with a very good friend of mine, uh, Andrew Adonis, about this, because he was one of the people who was trying, in a way, to get, get the result reversed. And I, I kept saying to him, you can't do it. Uh, and he said, yes, we can. And so there was all, all you know. And I, I, think they were, I think they were completely wrong. Um, if you, there's a case against having a referendum. We know that it was Cameron's um, ploy to neuter Farage. We know that he mismanaged. The, the, the referendum in, in, in serious ways. He didn't get enough concessions from Merkel, and he, he took it too lightly. He just assumed that the, the yes, you know, that the, the, the Remain votes. So we know all that, but having done it, there it is. You have to live with the consequences. Whether, whether, whether um, Britain is uh, now going to be global Britain, um, and um, Sail, sail back into a, a 21st century version of the British Empire uh, is, is much more dubious. Do but you think global Britain is real? Obviously, we're not going to go out and colonise countries and, and so on, but you know, you've done a lot of work overseas. You're an international historian. You've had overseas business interests in the past, Lord Skidelsky. We're pretty good at this stuff, this international business stuff. Shouldn't we be trading more with the rest of the world? After all, 
the rest of the world's growing a lot faster than Europe. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, if, we, if, we, if we produce anything the rest of the world wants, then of course we should trade with, with anyone we can. And we produce very, very superior financial services, uh, and, we, uh, and we do produce a few goods. Um, yeah, Ninth biggest manufacturer in the world? Yeah, yeah. Technology, technology and, and all kinds of, yeah, we should do well. Um, and it's in our history, actually. I think um, people ignore the, the extent to which Britain's history was forged outside Europe and not, not in Europe. Uh, the sun never set on the British Empire, it was said, um, quarter, quarter of the world. Our largest empire in history, largest nation state um, in Europe. Uh, uh, that ha it was the largest empire of any nation state mm -hmm. in Europe, mm -hmm. and that's a tradition. I think people are, you know, aware of it. Uh, they're instinctive explorers, and you know, they want to spread themselves. I think that's been a characteristic of an island people, and. Um, it's, it's, it doesn't mean that we're going to, um, we're going to you know, conquer all the markets of the world, but I mean, that's the, the, the trend. There's also, I'm very, um, I'm very um, skeptical of confident forecasts of the type that our GDP um, is going to be 4% lower than it would have been <laughs> had we stayed in the European Union. That does seem to me to be an example exactly of where economic forecasting goes wrong. We don't know. We don't know what it would have been had we stayed in and what it will be when we're out. You're still very involved with practical policy making here in the UK. You sit on the Economic Affairs Committee of the House of Lords, a very influential committee. Yourself, Mervyn King, Michael Forsyth is the chair, Nick Stern of the LSE, some real big economic minds there. Your committee recently brought out a report which was very critical of the Bank of England. It was called Quantitative Easing, a Dangerous Addiction. The bank was pretty purse-lipped, not best pleased at that report. What have you made of the response to what was a very important uh, study by the House of Lords Committee? The, 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 real, the real problem is it's, it, it's got to be an addiction um, because it's the only weapon uh, the government has um, since responsibility for macro policy was handed to the central banks. If anything goes wrong, they've only got this, this particular tool. Now, I don't, I don't actually, I mean, if you start from the inflationary side of things, I don't buy the argument that um, we're headed for a period of high inflation, a period of high inflation. Because if you consider that about eight, eight, 875 billion pounds has been of new money has been pumped into the economy since 2008, 2000. We ought to be in hyperinflation by now if, if you know, it was as potent a weapon yeah, yeah. Um, as, as it claims to be. What I think quantitative easing does, and I think this was some, behind some of the thinking in the report, what it does is it stokes up um, inflationary bubbles, which then collapse, which mean you need more quantitative easing. Right. Um, um, to, to so you think it's a sugar rush rather than yeah. a sort of long-term stimulant? I think so. I think my, my sense is that um, headline unemployment figures are not a very good guide 
to the amount of spare capacity in the economy. I'm, I'm persuaded by the argument that you really need to about double it on the whole to get an a accurate idea of the extent of underemployment. Now, of course, there's also mismatch and you get you know, huge job vacancies, but then you... And, um, and they're, they're in different places in the country, the skills the aren't there. So you'll get the bottlenecks and that'll be an inflationary. Of course, yeah. that pushes up wages and yeah. prices. Yeah, that that will be inflated, but that, on the whole, you rely on the market eventually yeah. to sort out. So I don't believe that you're going to get this sustained uh, uh, pressure uh, uh, on prices, which you had in the '60s and '70s, mm. when you had very high, uh, 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 very low unemployment, two percent, mm. something like that, and very strong unions, mm. very strong wage push, and then the government accommodating it, mm. um, and and employers willing to push up, uh, push up prices because they ha were, had quasi-monopoly positions. So you had wage push, employers um, um, uh, accommodating, and then the state printing the money necessary. So that was a systemic inflationary um, period, mm. which was broken um, uh, by, by governments and also by, by, by changes, changes in the structure of the economy. China came on board, and I mean, there are lots of things, but then... So how will the QE end? story end then? Again, if future historians look back, we've been massively expanding the money supply since the financial crisis in 2008-9. I mean, can it go on forever? Yeah, why not? And why can't the balance sheet of the bank just grow, central bank grow and grow? I mean, in the end, you're right. I mean, people will then lose confidence in that money. And if, if, if it does go on and on, they'll, um, they'll do bitcoins and lots of other things. What's interesting at the moment, uh, uh, you asked about the EAC, the, our economic committee, we're doing an inquiry into central bank digital currencies. The central banks are talking about something that looks like restoring the gold standard in, 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 in trying to get a, a stable central bank currency going. And I think part of it is because they know that they can't easily escape from their, their quantitative easing yeah. uh, uh, addiction. addiction. So that, you know, that it looks like the beginning of, they're talking about a currency reform of some kind. Uh, I don't know how far it's going to go. They're only discussing it at the moment. And, but all central banks are, all the main central banks are. I must, I must ask you, Lord Skidelsky, what did you make of Rishi Sunak's budget? He's got some really high growth assumptions in there, 6.5%, 6% over this year and next. All his numbers rely on those growth assumptions. Do you think they were reasonable or too optimistic? Well, I, I actually asked him about that, um, and, and he just said OBR. The Office of Budget Responsibility, yeah, the Office of it's their, their assumptions. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he said, it's their assumptions, and our policy, we believe in evidence-based policy. All our policy is based on evidence. Uh, and this was the evidence we're presented with. Um, these are the Do you buy it? No, I think it's much too optimistic. 
leave aside uh, the, the headwinds that are going to you know inevitably come i don't think uh, why 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 do we why do we expect um, the british economy in the next couple of years to improve on its long-term trend which was much much lower there, of course there's a bounce back but again it's not a high growth period we're going to get get into um, and his hope of his 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 balance budget targets he wants to he wants to get a current account balance um, in 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 2024 depend on the high growth That's essentially right. because he's not he says he's not going to put up any more taxes uh, or i mean he hasn't announced anymore there been there were tax increases in april mm. he hasn't uh, there are no new taxes in the budget and so it's all now growth mm. um, it's a big risk it's a big risk but but then you see um george osborne set a good example when he missed his targets which he did repeatedly uh, he said well headwinds headwinds and we can't be expected uh, uh, to uh, to guard against those because they're unexpected and i think this is where um i'm very impressed by the chancellor by the way he gave a very very good performance he was master of his complete master of his brief he uh, uh, knew the figures um and he didn't have to really refer to the two people from the treasury who who who, who were guarding him on either side but um i i do think he he hasn't got a he hasn't got an overall view of 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 how the economy works or if he has it's basically a friedmanite view with these that's the opposite of a keynesian view opposite. it's a small state yeah. low tax yeah. view and that nothing nothing else is necessary unless there are big shocks these big shocks are of the nature of a once in lifetime shocks although there've been two within 10 years but um he that's his basic model i think and therefore you you carry on with good supply side measures and then if there are these shocks you're a keynesian in the foxhole i and and you get out of it as soon as possible and then you get back to normal business i think that's his basic view and i i don't think anyone who was trained in economics um of his age would have really got would have done keynes much um he he did um say something very interesting which was um that he had unearthed a lot of keynes scribbles from um bretton woods conference which he's displaying in the treasury but i think their view of keynes is yes well of course he's a great icon um and you know every scribble of a great icon is something to be treasured but as for his practical relevance today very limited finally robert let me ask you about russia you spent quite a lot of time in russia in your adult life your family uh was originally from russia um you have many many russian friends i know relations between our two countries have deteriorated haven't they yeah. how do you feel about that well i think um there are three reasons really why they're so bad with russia and and other countries but russia I concentrate on first of all we cannot give up our habit of lecturing other countries about their moral turpitudes and people don't like being lectured in that way second i think that um the the sanctions regime um 
it, sanctions creep sours all communication. We, we can't actually talk to various individuals in Russia now. It's almost impossible because communications, I mean, sanctions are the opposite of communication. Mm -hmm. And if you can't talk to people, relations are bound to get colder and colder. And the third thing is Russian paranoia. I mean, they're, they're, they are paranoid, paranoid. Um, and that's very difficult. When Putin was asked this question about who's responsible for the bad, bad, bad relations, he said it's the West. Russia's always been open to, you know, uh, talking and uh, so on, but it hasn't. And um, they, they do believe the West is out to do them down, to deprive them, not only to deprive them of territory, which they think is theirs historically, to deprive them of influence. And um, that has the effect of pushing Russia and China together, who haven't, historically, they've been at loggerheads. I mean, and they've got a lot to quarrel about over that very long frontier and all, all, that, all that Eurasian space. So is that, a, is that a sensible outcome for a foreign policy? We haven't managed our post-Cold War relations well, though, have we? If we've driven China and Russia close together to, as you say, powers that have traditionally been very suspicious of one another. We haven't. And I think um, the triumphalist mood in 1989 was largely responsible for that. When the Berlin Wall fell and yeah, no. it was the end of history, yeah, said, yeah. and the world is now going to be one, uh, uh, capitalist, uh, harmonious, peaceful community run by us. Um, by us, I mean, with American help. <laughs> <laughs> that must make you personally sad, though. You're somebody of Russian yeah. ethnicity. Well, I'm very sad. I'm who, very... who has tried a huge amount, and I've seen it in the last 30 years, to to engender certainly better understanding between Russia and the UK in particular. I think, I think um, one must uh, never, never underestimate the ability of politicians to mess up these things. I mean, and, and of course they're imprisoned, they're imprisoned. I mean, the, many, of, many of the British uh, political class was bred on the Cold War. I mean, they're still old enough to remember the Cold War. Um, and, and the Russians have, um, you know, memories of a real defeat, which, and they thought they were unfairly unfairly uh, given promises that were not kept. Um, as the Soviet Union collapsed. As the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, and so there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of misperception, misunderstanding, just a uh, general feeling of, um, of, of uh, uh, I don't know, drifting apart into, and, and I really do dread the, a new Cold War. I think it would be, a, terrible outcome of history, given the fact that um, uh, the ideological battle, which was at the center of the Cold War, is over. To now have a balance of power battle and get back to um, calculations of balance of power, which in the end led to the First World War, is, 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 is awful. It's absolutely awful as well as the fact that I don't think that the American reading of China is correct. I think if we're talking about world conquerors, 
it is the West that has been the, the, the world conqueror of modern history, no one else. So not because, not only because they weren't able to do it, but I don't think China was ever in, 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 that, in that game. Do you remember uh, from, from history, was it in 1440, 1430, the Chinese had their last expedition across the Pacific? Um, and they actually went into, into the Arabian Peninsula. And then after that, they disbanded their navy. They did not want to um, conquer anywhere else. When in 1780 or 1790, the British um, ambassador came to China, trying to you know, inc increase trade and so on, Chinese emperor saw the goods that Lord McCartney displayed and said, we don't need any of this. I, it, but isn't isn't China under Xi increasingly belligerent, increasingly, if not imperial? Certainly, they got their eyes on Taiwan. Yep. Certainly, they're getting a lot more pushy about uh, U.S. warships, British warships hanging around in the South China Sea. There is a change of atmosphere. There is. They're becoming more assertive in Hong Kong. They've been doing things that we don't like, uh, and they regard these as part of their country. Taiwan and Hong Kong. Um, but they don't regard France as part of their country. <laughs> you know, th th their ambitions are rather limited. They do want, they do want um, control over, over, over the seas around them. There was a very interesting interview with someone from Beijing, and he said, look at the view from, from here, Beijing. You look at the coast, and you have 100 bases American bases mm. going in an arc mm. from north of Japan down to the South Sea. Are you in doubt that we feel surrounded somewhat uh, by this? I mean, um, so I can understand. They've got a point. They've got a point. They've got a point. We'll see how it works out. Lord Skidelsky, great to see you. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a rating and review on Apple iTunes, YouTube or wherever you're listening or watching. Please subscribe to Money Talk so you never miss an episode. And check out my TV show, On The Money, which appears at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News. Or you can catch up via the GB News YouTube channel or app. GB News, Britain's news channel.